Welcome back, creeps. Hi, everyone. Hi, how are you doing? Are you all right? <laughs> I'm good, too. Thank you. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Merry Friday, everyone. Oh, can we dedicate this episode to someone else? Leon! Leon V! One of my very best friends. Okay. I told him I'd dedicate this one to him. All right, so our Patreon of the week is Leon. <laughs> cool. We're friends. <laughs> He's nice. <laughs> yeah, he is. All right, what in this? What in that? How are you this week? I'm good. Um, had a rocky start of the week, but I'm fucking fantastic. I was like, you know, walking around at work and smiling, looking like I was just laughing at a joke, and the HR lady was like. You're pretty happy today. Haven't seen you happy like this in a really long time. <laughs> Thanks, like, lady. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, yep, just in a good mood, you know. <laughs> right on. Also, what else happened this week was the goat, Jim Harold, followed the us goat. on Instagram. Okay, so Adam told me he didn't want me to read the tech conversation. That no, you had. wanted me to send it to him. No, I wanted you to upload it to IG and tag him. That's oh, what I sorry. wanted you to okay. do. But you said, no, I don't want to scare him off. <laughs> I highly doubt that he's on Instagram as much as you are. So I'll, I'll read it in my best uh, Adam voice. Oh, and God. I'll read my part in my best Dulce voice to sort of capture the nuances of this conversation. Context. I was at work. I got a notification on my phone, and it said, Jim Harold is now following you. I was sitting on the toilet. Yeah, he was at home sitting on the toilet. And so I text him, Jim Harold is following us. And he said, I just saw that. What the fuck? Maybe one of our this? listeners. <laughs> this is you. Is fucking Russell Brand. This <laughs> is you. <laughs> Maybe one of our listeners. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Okay. This is how you sound to me. Fucking hell, this is setting us up for this episode. <laughs> I just saw that. What the fuck? Maybe one of our listeners called into him. Maybe. Yay. Is this real life? <laughs> the OG is following us. The fucking goat. I posted to our close friends list. Lol. Lol. Jim Harold. Oh. I wrote, I put a potato emoji. <laughs> I put a potato emoji and then Jim Harold. And I said, get it? Get it? Ah. And you were like, no. And I said, Papa Jim Harold. And he said, ha ha ha. Y'all are a goose. So, potato and. That is the worst impression <laughs> of me. I'm actually <laughs> in shock, I think. So. The reason why I put a potato emoji in front of Jim Harold to Adam was because in Spanish, potato is papa. So that's P -A -P -A. why. P-A-P-A. And so when you look at that, you're, you think papa, papa Jim Harold. Yeah. But I didn't think that. I just thought potato Jim Harold. <laughs> no. What? If you read it in Spanish, it would say papa Jim Harold. <laughs> <laughs> Because he is the OG. <laughs> anyway, so hopefully he never hears this. But uh, <laughs> we appreciate it. 
<laughs> I definite. enjoyed that. <laughs> I enjoyed doing that. <laughs> <laughs> that was a terrible impression. But I feel like terrible impressions is just something that we do really well here. Yeah. And today is no different because we are going to West Yorkshire. Oh, shit. Yeah. Fuck me up accents. We're also going back in time. So, uh... <laughs> What? That's the sound when you go back in time. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, so today we are talking about the Black Monk of Pontefract. Isn't Rasputin also known as a Black Monk? I don't fucking know. There's probably a lot of Black Monks of different areas, you know what I mean? Yeah. But this particular one is said to be the most violent poltergeist case in history no shit yeah all over the world but for whatever reason it seemed to have gotten overlooked by the enfield haunting okay okay so that one kind of like because of the enfield haunting yeah it was overlooked okay kind of um i mean there's a lot of reasons why one was more popular than the other and stuff like that but the enfield haunting happened like 10 years after this so i don't know why it's always compared to that though maybe it's because it happened and then was forgotten about and then the Enfield haunting like took off. Yeah. Because this book was written in nineteen eighty. When what year did the did this happen, the Black Monk? I'll get into it. I'll get into okay, it. Okay, cool. May, that'll maybe make it like help us understand. Yeah, so the why. Let's just forget about the Enfield haunting. Let's never speak of it again. <laughs> okay. Because we are here to talk about the Pontefract monk. Pontefract. Yeah, also known as uh the 30 East Drive poltergeist. But obviously, Black, Black Monk, Monk rolls off the tongue better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, this first bit takes place. Also, this is going to be a multi multi parter. Not sure how many just yet. I'm only halfway through my research, so I don't yeah. even fucking know. We'll anyway, find out soon, baby. Yeah. This first bit takes place around the August bank holiday in 1966 in the lovely town of Pontefract in West Yorkshire, England. Pontefract. Pontefract. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's an awkward word. It is. The Pritchard family, Joe and Jean Pritchard, have taken their daughter, Diane, to Devon for a little holiday. Seems it's the bank holiday weekend. Their son, however, is like, he's like outgrown these kinds of holidays. I think he's around 16. Okay, yeah. So he's opted to spend a few days. With his friends? At home. But Well, probably, but his granny comes up to kind of babysit him. Mm. Not you know, stay in the house so he's not fucking completely unattended. Yeah. And the granny is uh, Mrs. Scholes. Or actually, maybe it's Scholes. What do you think? S-C-H-O-L-E-S? Probably Scholes. Oh, probably Scholes. When you said uh, Grandma Scholes. I don't know. It is Scholes, yeah. Oh, because I started thinking about that old lady from that Resident Evil 8 game. game. Okay. Yeah. She looks like an old, what do you call it? Hag? Yeah. Okay, no, well, this lady seems lovely. And yeah, it is uh, Mrs. Scholes, as in if you're from the UK or anywhere like that, the old Man United football player, Paul Scholes. And I believe he had a brother. That's all I know about football. Anyway. Or you might be familiar with Dr. Scholes. No, see, that's Scholes. Oh, never mind. The foot doctor? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I'll try and stay on track. I'm just excited about this story. I won't. It's a lovely warm Thursday morning, so Philip decides to go out to the garden and read a book, while Mrs. Scholes, Granny, 
was in the living room knitting a cardigan. Around 11.30am, a sudden gust of wind slammed the back door shut and rattled the windows in their frames. It must have snapped Philip out of whatever book he was reading and he went back inside to make a coffee for himself. Of course, it is actually against the law in both the UK and Ireland to make oneself a drink of tea or coffee without asking everyone in the house if they would also like one. (laughs) So he goes into his granny because he's a good law abiding citizen (laughs) and asks asks her, does she want some tea? Uh. She says, yes, of course, obviously. But she also asks him, is it getting windy outside? And he says, no, it's lovely and like calm and warm sitting out there reading a book. And Granny Scholes has been like cold in the house all morning. That's why she's like, how is he sitting out there? It's fucking freezing. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, he goes out to make the tea and coffee. And 10 minutes later, he comes back into the room with Granny's tea in his hand. And he sees her there knitting away. But all around her, floating down through the air, is a gray white powder, like (laughs) chalk dust. Oh, I thought you were going to say, like, fresh snow. Well, no, it's, like, finer than that. Oh, nice. It's That's like kind of cool. So, like, Granny hadn't even noticed, right? Yeah. She's, like, so bet into knitting this cardigan. and Plot twist, it was for cocaine. In my note here, I have, as if this cardigan was the latest Fast and Furious. I could just see it, like, go, <laughs> oh, where's it going to go next? <laughs> um, but when she looks up to see why Philip is just stood in the doorway... She sees him through this mini snowstorm and is immediately like, what the fuck have you done? <laughs> uh, she blames it on him. Nice. Yeah. Now, poor Philip had only been in the kitchen making tea, but they figured it had to have been something blown in through the window, like from the street, maybe a passing car or construction or something. Or maybe something was like coming off the ceiling. Mm-hmm. Oh, OK. Like yeah. asbestos. Well, yeah, or whatever it was that they might have used. Uh huh. But as they're there trying to understand what the fuck they're actually looking at. Yeah. They realize that. One, they had literally wallpapered the ceiling only a few months ago. Now, I've never really heard of anyone wallpapering the ceiling. But this is the 60s. So and another thing they noticed was that. It was only falling from like the five foot mark. Right. As if the room was split in two, like the non powder half and the powder half. Weird. So it was like materializing. Oh, in okay. a cloud, yeah, almost. Yeah. Interesting. Halfway up, yeah, it was below their eye level. Literally, I've never heard anything like this. Me neither. So, Granny Scolds' other daughter, Philip's aunt, mm-hmm. she lived just across the road. So she went over to get her, like, not scared or anything at this stage. I think she just wanted another adult to verify what they're both seeing and to yeah. see if they can, like, come up with an explanation. Correct. So Marie is this lady's name. Okay. She says her mother called over to the house looking like a snowman. Oh, wow. And when they got back to the Pritchard's house, it Uh, was still going. No shit. Yeah, the whole place is covered in this like mysterious chalk dust. And the cup of tea that Philip had made is now covered. In the white stuff. Yeah, like it's filling the cup. So they stood there just staring for a few minutes and <laughs> then Marie decided whatever it is, it needs to be cleaned up. So she goes into the kitchen to grab a cloth. <laughs> oh, practical. Uh, yeah, Marie is very down to earth in this whole story. Yeah. Anyway, she goes into the kitchen to grab a cloth and actually slips in a puddle of water on the kitchen floor. Mm-hmm. She shouts back into her mother. Are you sure you haven't had an accident? The place is flooded. To which Granny Skulls replied, I'm not senile yet. 
Mary mops up the pool of water anyway. Fucking granny man. <laughs> I know. But when she does, she notices another one. She mops this one up and notices another one. This goes on and on. And like literally as soon as she's finished one, another one just appears in front of her. Hmm. So at this point, she's like, there must be a burst pipe or something. Yeah. Like this all has to be linked with the fucking mini snowstorm going on in the living room. So she goes and the, the kitchen floor is linoleum. Yeah. Do you know, like, you know what linoleum is? That's the same. Over I've here? met him. Yeah. Okay. So she goes over to the corner. She peels it back because she's like, oh, fuck, it must be a Underneath. burst pipe. Let's check it out. Yeah. But when she peels back the lino, the floor beneath is completely bone dry, as is the back of the lino. Mm-hmm. She's like, OK, it can't be a burst pipe. Like, what the fuck? The other thing is these pools have been like perfectly made, too. Right. There's no splashes or anything to say. Like, you know, if you spilled a cup of tea or a glass of water, mm-hmm. like it would go in a splash. Yeah. They describe these as looking as if somebody like held a jug of water to the floor and slowly poured it. That is strange. Like the edges were intact. Yeah. All of them. Just perfectly neat little puddles. Marie was Jean Pritchard's sister. She lived across the street. And Joe's brother and his wife, Enid, actually lived next door. Similar to the Belfast story, this is a council estate, so a lot of the families are just housed close together. Mm-hmm. Enid, next door, had heard the commotion and came in to see what was going on. She saw the water on the floor and she went straight to the water mains and turned it off to make sure... If there was flooding happening, this would limit all damage and stop the water coming into the house. But it didn't. These pools kept appearing. And right now there's three very level-headed adults in here trying to stop this. And I think they're just panicking because they're like, Joe and Jean have only gone away for a few days and the place is all of a sudden turning upside down. Yeah, (laughs) We can't have them coming back to this. Right. So anyway, Marie had to go back home and make her husband's lunch. This is 1966. Okay. But I think as well, like a lot of the time, anyway, I'm not going into it. (laughs) We get it. The women's roles were different. Anyway, Marie had to go home to make her husband's lunch, but she rang the water board when she got there and told them that there was an emergency at number 30. Mm -hmm. They said, we will send someone immediately, straight away. After lunch. So by the time this fella had actually showed up, like an hour or so later, the powder had stopped falling in the lounge. Also, I I keep jumping between lounge and living room. It's the same fucking room. I think people just call it. That's what I figured. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, the the powder had stopped falling and they had just cleaned it up. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Like swept, dusted, all that. It looked brand new. But this water was still showing up. So this guy came in and he checked everything he could think of, all the pipes, like the drains outside, whatever. And then he suggested that maybe it was some sort of atmospheric thing, like condensation from the humidity. And everyone was like, oh, yeah, you know what? Maybe you're right. Yeah. But they knew that wasn't it. Like this was. They were grasping at straws. Yeah, literally. And it was also like the bank holiday in August is around the first week of August. And it had been a particularly dry spell, like no rain, no nothing, lovely weather. So they just said, all right, well, thanks anyway. But again, this was no help to fucking anyone. About an hour after he left, the puddles just stopped. That was it. So how long were the, pu- the puddles happening? 
from what I can gather, at least like three hours or so. Okay. It wasn't like an all day thing. No, I don't think so. Um, could have been a few hours spell mm-hmm. anyway of these enough puddles. to get alarmed. Yeah. <laughs> so Mary and Enid went back to their respective houses and thought, well, that was a weird fucking occurrence, but whatever, it's done now. About seven o'clock that evening, Granny's sitting watching the telly and Philip comes in and says it's happening again. They go out into the kitchen and the kitchen counter has been covered in dry tea leaves and sugar. And as they're stood there, the tea dispenser was just unloading all over the training board. But it wasn't like the tea dispenser was broken or anything. The button was just being pressed in, released, pressed in, Oh, and they can see it in real time. They can see this happening. And it keeps happening until eventually the tea dispenser is empty and the button just keeps going. Does the tea dispenser dispense tea bags or the tea leaves? Neither. It's like a made tea. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I think this is like an old-fashioned thing. It was like, you know, top of the range, keeps your tea warm and glass, all that kind of thing. Like the stuff they have at, at a workplace. Yeah, exactly. Cool. But even after it was empty and there was just tea all over the draining board. That sucks. Yeah. It just kept pressing in and releasing, pressing in and releasing. So they stood there staring until eventually Granny Skulls shouts, stop it. Philip took that personally. He was like, I can't. It's doing it on its own. (laughs) And as he said that, there's a loud bang from the hallway. They look at one another, pale and in complete shock. Slowly, they open the door, expecting to see some sort of intruder. Yeah. But... There's nothing. As they both stand there staring into this dark, empty hallway, the light turns itself on with a click of the switch that makes them both jump. But now they see just what made all that noise. Mm -hmm. They moseyed on down the hall to the foot of the stairs. And as they look up, they see a plant. Regular old house plant, which usually sits at the foot of the stairs, but is now about halfway up. It's also not in the pot. Just the dirt in the plant. Just the dirt in the plant. The pot is on the landing above. So right. the, That's so strange. The pot just so, left the plant behind. Yeah. That's so weird. It's like, fuck you, I'm out of here. And the plant's like my pants. <laughs> <laughs> Another sound, this time from the kitchen, and they both jump again. When they go to investigate, they find the crockery cupboard is shaking and vibrating. Crockery is just cups, plates, glasses, whatever. It's the cabinet. Yeah, containing cups, plates, glasses, and whatever. (laughs) But they said it looked like there was someone actually stuck inside the cupboard, trying to get out. Philip, balls of steel Philip. Nice. Whips the door open, and all the noises stop instantly. But as he does it, another loud banging noise starts from somewhere else in the house. Interestingly enough, Granny Skulls had actually heard this noise earlier in the day, but just assumed that it was the next door neighbor doing work on the house or something. But now, in conjunction with everything that's going on, she realizes that no, it was not just the neighbors going at it. Also, the place is unusually cold while all this stuff is going on. And finally, Granny has had enough. She says, I'm going to get Marie. And Philip quickly followed suit. Like, he did not want to be in that house on his own. So they go get Marie. Marie comes back over, thinking, like, 
what are these two on about? <laughs> but when they get back in the house, the cupboard is doing the whole shaky, vibrating thing again. Yeah. And all the cups and plates inside are like rattling. Poor granny. Yeah. So it couldn't have been the neighbors. That's the first thing they thought of. Yeah. Because the cupboard is actually on the exterior wall. Okay. The only thing behind it is the fucking garden. Okay. Either way, Granny Skulls goes next door to ask if they had been making the banging noise to validate something. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. there has to be something physical going on here. But when she goes to the neighbors, Mrs. Mountain, Whoa. she tells her, we thought it was you. Oh, they heard that. They could hear the banging noise too. Oh, no shit. Anyway, Granny is at the end of her fucking tether. She's like, well, what the fuck could it be? She goes back in to Marie and Philip. And at this stage, it's all calmed down again. So they thought, fuck it. Maybe that's it done now. Whatever it was. Yeah. They had a cup of tea and Marie went back to her own house around 9.30, 9.30 p.m. Philip just went to bed after this. He was like, fuck this. I'm going to bed. And Granny Skulls, I think, just kind of tidies up and goes up not long after him thinking a good night's sleep is... What we all need. Yeah. She went in to give Philip a kiss goodnight. Because she's a sweet old lady. Nice. But when she leans over to give him a kiss, she realizes that he's staring wide-eyed over her shoulder. So she turns around and his wardrobe was rocking and shaking back and forth in the corner of his room. Like a drunk person is what it said in the book. Like not just a little bit like fully going like it's going to topple over. And she says, get dressed and let's get the fuck over to Marie's house. Yeah. And they said, good night. Yeah. But like that, it's only around like maybe 10 o'clock right now. So Marie and her husband, Vic, they're more intrigued than anything. Like Vic didn't go over to the house earlier because he just assumed that it was, you know, his mother-in-law overreacting or something. Yeah. Whatever. But now actually having seen how frightened they were, Mm -hmm. because as well earlier, they weren't afraid. Mm -hmm. Like this was just happening and they were like, what the fuck is going on? There must be a reasonable explanation. Mm -hmm. Ghosts had never even entered their fucking mind. Yeah. But now having seen how frightened they are, Vic is like, oh, fuck, like we better call the police. And because that's just what people do. (laughs) Like, yeah, you really don't. I mean, there's no other comprehensible thing action to do like so it makes a lot of sense to especially me. back then yeah so anyway about 10 minutes later three policemen arrived and marie and vic went over to the house to meet them they checked all over doing what they could like checking for forced entry or any sign that maybe somebody had snuck in and is still there playing a joke or something mm-hmm. but all was quiet and nothing seemed out of place and the house didn't do anything weird So the police went on their merry way and Marie and Vic went back across to their own house. It was almost midnight by now, but they were invested. So (laughs) Vic remembered that they had a weird friend, one of our people, by the sounds of things, who was into ghosts. One of us. One of us. So the weird friend was called Mr. O'Donnell. Okay. So they walked up the road to his house and they were like, if we see his light on, we'll knock in. If not, we'll go back home. Okay. Of course, his downstairs light was on. So like, brilliant. They knocked on the door, explained everything. And being a weirdo was only more than happy to come and have a look. Puts on his coat and he goes down <laughs> to the house. He's like, fuck yeah. Yeah, this is literally the call I've been waiting my whole <laughs> life for. Like, 
So they go back down to the house and they sit there for the guts of two hours. But of course, nothing fucking happens when they actually wanted it to. Mm-hmm. Mr. O'Donnell had obviously done like a decent amount of reading about like different types of ghosts or whatnot. But again, this is 1966. So everything is very black and white. Mm-hmm. Like this is what a poltergeist does. This is what a spirit does. Okay. You know, there's still okay. two different things. And it's only because of uh. adolescent children being present and mm-hmm. otherwise, blah, blah, blah. There's like hard black and white rules to follow for hauntings. Yeah. That's kind of the impression that I've gotten, even from this book that I was reading from 1980. And uh, anyway, he's sitting there and they're like, what else do you talk about while you're waiting for ghost stuff to happen other mm-hmm. than ghosts? He's explaining the different roles of different types of entities and hauntings and stuff. But in his own opinion, this activity was a direct result of Philip's own unconscious manifestations. And seeing as Philip was now over in Vic and Marie's house, nothing was likely to happen. Mm-hmm. It'll probably happen again once Philip returns home. Okay. So around 1.45 a.m., Mr. O'Donnell decides to call it quits and says, look, it'll probably happen again tomorrow. Like, don't worry, it's going to come back. Don't worry. Yeah. But as he's leaving, he tells them, they do funny things. They're very fond of tearing up photographs, I believe. Interesting. So I'm assuming that's how he spoke, just really ominous messages and, you know, he's the weird ghost guy. Is it because his last name's O'Donnell that you gave him an Irish accent? Maybe, or maybe it's because <laughs> I have an Irish accent. I can't do anything else. <laughs> anyway, good night, he says. <laughs> He's like, they do really fucked up shit, and they like to watch you shower. Yeah. And, and all right, good night. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so, Marie and Vic make sure the place is like tidy and secure. But as they're locking the front door, they hear a loud crash from inside. They run back in and turn on the lights, only to see two oil paintings lying face down in the living room. Okay. The way this next bit was written had me a little bit confused. But I think as they were staring at these falling paintings, they heard glass shatter. And Joe and Jean's wedding photo was slashed from end to end as if with a sharp knife. Weird. The poltergeist had apparently overheard Mr. O'Donnell. Huh. That's a quote. So I just I'm not sure whether the the wedding photo had fallen to the ground, broken, or whether it was sitting on the wall and the glass just shattered in front of them mm-hmm. and slashed. Mm-hmm. But either way, they were fucking freaked out. Well, that sucks. Yeah, and kind of fucking evil, right? <laughs> like, yeah, because like, what if they don't have the negatives? Well, I mean, they probably didn't. This was 1966, you know, photographs were. A rare thing, even, you know? Like yeah. Like a decent, like, nice wedding photograph. And they're probably expensive. Yeah, probably. That's pretty fucked up, poltergeist. So anyway, Joe, Jean, and Diane returned the next day from their little holiday. And when they were told about everything that had gone on the night before, or well, the day before, they Joe specifically was like, okay, yeah, I'm sure that happened. He didn't not believe them, but he thought they were at the very least exaggerating everything mm-hmm. that happened. And so Joe asks, what kind of knocks were you hearing? Like, what, what were these banging sounds? And as if in reply, they heard three loud knocks somewhere in the house, followed by a cold gust of wind so strong that the windows rattled as it blew through the house. Then, silence. Mm. 
the temperature went back to normal and that was the end of that. Not a peep more. Philip grew up and when he left school, this is just a totally random fact. Turns out his dad, Joe, owned the local pet shop and that's where he went to work. How fucking cool is that? That is so cool. How nice. Like, what a fucking dream. It's like, oh, yes, daddy works in the local pet shop. That's what I'm going to be. <laughs> and, uh, I don't know. He's a he's beetle sell- now. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. he's like a beetle. Me and my friends Ringo and Paul. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone just forgot about it. They were like, that was fucking weird. <laughs> and went on with their lives. Mm-hmm. Granny Skulls never forgot about it. And what apparently schools never forgets. Yeah, <laughs> that bridge farm remembers. <laughs> but apparently she would always bring it up. Really? Just be like, Do you remember when we had an haunting? I feel <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's just what grannies do. I mean, yeah, but it like the fact that the author made a point of saying how often she brought it up. Yeah. It was like any events. So like yeah. family parties or anything. Yeah. So you're like, remember that time we had an haunting? Yeah. Anyway. I mean, your granny brings up the fact that she used to make you jam sandwiches. Yeah, all the time. At the randomest times. Yeah. It's because oh. we were just so happy. We had nothing, but we were happy. <laughs> so sweet. Anyway, the granny would go on about this all the time, much to the disdain of Joe, the dad, mm-hmm. who... Clearly just wanted to forget whatever had happened. He didn't experience it. And he was like, oh, here we fucking go again with the ghost story. <laughs> granny, Jesus. <laughs> Enough with the ghost, yeah, Granny. Yeah, I get it. The cupboards are shaking. All right. <laughs> um, anyway. I, I would, to be fair, I would love to hear her retell it. Because, you know, they always like oh, play yeah. it up. Absolutely. You know what I mean? But anyway, she had started like she. The granny spent almost every weekend over at the house. Mm-hmm. Don't know about staying over, but like she lived close by and she was just there all the time. Nice. Always talking about the haunting. <laughs> um, and I'm making fun of how this lady sounds, but there's a video. Of her? No, of the next door Aww. neighbor lady. Remember yeah. the cleaner? Yeah. That's this case. Oh, oh okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. But we'll get into that later. Sick. So anyway, Granny was there one afternoon, as usual, and Jean had been upstairs redecorating Diane, the daughter's room. And she had come downstairs for a cup of tea, take a little break. And next thing, Granny starts telling Jean that she's been hearing noises in the house. Jean seems like she's just more than used to hearing Granny going on like this. Mm-hmm. And she says, well, I literally live here and i'm here all the time and i haven't heard a thing and granny skulls asks her didn't you hear something just then jean says no like fucking whatever <laughs> like you're yeah. losing it goes back and finishes her cup of tea but when she goes back out into the hall she sees the counterpane from diane's bed at the foot of the stairs i googled the counterpane cool <laughs> it's that decorative cover that goes at the foot of the bed yeah, like sometimes in a nice hotel, they'll have like, it's not a full blanket. Oh, okay. maybe back then it was a bedspread. That's what they call them. Do they? Okay, well, I I didn't know what they were. It's just literally like to cover the foot of the mm-hmm. bed. Anyway, that was at the foot of the stairs, but nobody had been in the hall, and she sure as shit didn't carry down like just yeah. a random piece of bedding, and leave it there. But she was like, "Oh, that's strange. I'll just put it back." <laughs> Where did these people get this, like, mentality? I don't know. Anyway, she brings it back upstairs, carries on decorating. 
It had been two years since the first incident. Okay. Two years with absolutely nothing happening. Now, I'm not sure how long they had been in the house before this, but I know it wasn't that long. Uh They were in it fairly recently Mm -hmm. when the first thing happened. A few minutes later, there's a loud crash. And when Jean looks downstairs, she sees the counterpane from Philip's bed. And she also sees that the noise had come from a bunch of the plant pots, which had just been fucked upside down and all the soil was all over the carpet now. Huh. So the place was a fucking mess. And that was the crashing noise that they had heard was all these pots being flipped over. And poor old granny was just in the kitchen crying, saying, I told you it was starting again. Oh. The granny's 72 at this stage. So it's probably very much so the case. Like, oh, fucking granny's in there losing her mind. That's awful. And so some of the things that have happened in this book, if I was going to like paraphrase them or anything, there's just too much fucking detail. The author wrote it as concise as possible and i wasn't about to go in and just start changing it up so right now i'm gonna quote directly from the book again go for it so in bed later gene was unable to sleep even with both windows open the room was just too warm again this happened i think around august okay around the same time again she slipped out of bed and went onto the landing she had moved the painting materials out from diane's bedroom Everything was silent. She felt in the atmosphere the typical chill that she would later come to know so well. In the half-light that came from the street lamp outside, she could see something moving in the corner of the landing, something that swayed and rustled. She switched on the landing light. As she did so, something flew past her face, missing it by a fraction of an inch. She identified it later as a paintbrush. It was followed by the paste bucket which hit the opposite wall of the landing and scattered paste all over the carpet. What a dick. That's awful. In the dim light, she could now see what was moving. It was a long strip of wallpaper, which had been lying in a roll against the wall. Now it was standing on end and swaying like a cobra. That's so strange. Yeah, like this thing had unraveled itself. It literally sounds like something from a fucking Tim Burton movie. Yeah. But there was obviously no one holding it. She took courage and made a grab for it. The paper fluttered gently to the floor. At the same moment, the carpet sweeper flew up into the air and began to swing around as if being used as a club by an invisible giant. Too breathless to scream, Jean Pritchard fell on all floors. (laughs) Too breathless to scream, Jean fell on all fours and scrambled back into her bedroom. A roll of wallpaper followed her and hit the door. At last, she managed to scream. Joe sat up in bed, shouting, What's happening? Philip and Diane appeared from their bedrooms in their nightclothes. As they stood there, paintbrushes and other materials began to fly around. One of them missed Diane's head by a fraction of an inch. Another struck her on the shoulder. Her father shouted, Don't stand there! And Diane said with astonishment, It didn't hurt. Her surprise was understandable. The brush looked as if it had been moving fast enough to knock her over, yet it had merely given her a tap. Then they realised the invisible intruder had moved into Diane's bedroom. Philip, staring in astonishment through the doorway, watched the wooden pelmet above the bedroom window be torn off the wall, although it was held in by two-inch screws, and fly out the window. They heard it hit the path below. With a burst of anger, 
Joe Pritchard slammed Diane's bedroom door. From inside the bedroom, they could hear bangs and thumps. As Diane reached out to touch the door handle, Joe Pritchard shouted, Don't touch it! Diane withdrew her hand, and as if in response, there was a loud thump on the other side of the door. Diane spent the night in her parents' room. They locked their doors. It was a pointless measure, but it gave them some feeling of security. Now, I have a feeling I'm going to be doing a lot more reading from this because that was insane. <laughs> like, yeah. So that wooden thing that was ripped off the the bedroom window, mm-hmm. I think, like, you know, would be used to cover the curtain pole. Okay, yeah. Like, that's a big piece of fucking thing. And obviously yeah. the windows were open because it was hot, so it just got fucked out. So <laughs> this time it didn't go away, however. It would tend to be pretty quiet during the day. And usually this entity, who they initially labeled Mr. Nobody, although Gene renamed it Fred, which is so much less scary than Mr. Fucking Nobody. (laughs) Yeah, it kind of is, yeah. But he would make his presence known around bedtime. Fred's activities included loud bangs, quote, not unlike a child beating on a big drum, which is weird. I think what they were trying to get the point across was that it was nothing that they owned in the house Mm -hmm. that it was banging on. It was like completely... This noise was materializing out of nothing. Disembodied banging. Yeah. Items levitating and flying across the room. The lights would go out, but Fred seems to be a little bit more intelligent than your average spirit or ghost or whatever we're calling them. Yeah. He would actually turn off the lights at the breaker. Now, there's something so much fucking more creepy about this to me. Like, the fuse box was located in the cupboard under the stairs. And this would happen so often that eventually Gene actually went inside and taped the breaker in the on position. Mm-hmm. Now, we do this on building sites to tape them off to make sure that nobody <laughs> turns them on. Yeah. But about a half an hour later, the lights went off again. And when she went in to check, the breaker tape had just completely disappeared. Like it wasn't on the floor, in the cupboard, nothing. It was just gone. As if yeah. to say, you can't do that. Yeah. Like this is mine. and. For months, this goes on. Every single day. During the first few weeks or days, early on in this thing anyway, Philip suggests that maybe they should get the house exercised. Because it's getting fat. Ha ha ha. Oh, no. Um, so, no, anyway. <laughs> but I would also like to point out that it's still... I'm pretty sure this is 1968 at this stage. Mm -hmm. The latest is 69. So this is before the Exorcist movie and all that. Mm -hmm. And they thought everybody seemed to think that it was like a decent enough idea. So Vic, Marie's husband, got in touch with the local vicar, Reverend Davey. Davey explained that it wasn't quite as straightforward as just coming in, throwing crosses and holy water everywhere. There's a whole fucking procedure like you would have to get the bishop involved and even then, the bishop might say no, just yeah. because he didn't want that heat in the area kind of thing. A lot of red tape and clearance stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. load of bollocks. But he did agree to come over and see just like what the crack is anyway. So the next evening, Jane ma- or Gene makes a load of tea and sambos and Marie and Vic call over and they all just sit around telling Davey what all they had experienced in the house. They sat for about an hour and a half and of course... Nothing fucking happened. Gene was starting to get like almost embarrassed thinking like, oh, the good reverend would think that they were just wasting his time. 
But as he was getting ready to go home, Jean was saying, like, I'm sorry that we've dragged you all this way for nothing. And as she said this, the house was filled with a banging noise from one of the upstairs rooms and a candlestick fell off the mantelpiece onto the floor. Everybody was there. Everybody witnessed this, including Davy. The family were actually relieved for once that this activity had happened because, yeah. you know, they were like, see, ghost, right? Yeah. <laughs> Davy takes one look at the candlestick and says, I think I know what your problem is. Subsidence. Subsidence is when like a house naturally starts sinking into the foundations. Oh. Like, I actually think our house might be doing that. That's, that's where the saying comes from, where the house is settling. Yeah, kind of. Um. But it can become like a structural problem, like in older houses as well. Okay. Anyway, Marie starts to argue, like, because she knows what's going on in this house. She's like, it's not fucking sub- subsidence yeah. or subsidence or whatever it's called. It doesn't make wallpaper act like snakes. <laughs> yeah. But as she starts to argue, the other candlestick on the mantelpiece lifts up and floats across in front of the vicar's face and then drops to the floor in front of him. That was followed by a huge crashing sound. Quote, There's something so human about that, like the pettiness of it all. Yeah, it's like here. Yeah. <laughs> like drop my... Look at this. Yeah. Like, oh, it's not a ghost, bitch. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was actually thinking the same thing when you were saying about um, the breaker, how they kept turning it on and off. Yeah. Because, I mean... It's like a stubbornness. When I hear the stories, it's normally just like the lights go off out of nowhere or the TV turns on and it's not plugged. Those kind of like, wow, like out of like, like impossible things. Yeah. But this, but is this almost, case it's like a, it's an invisible person. Yeah. Yeah. You know it's almost I mean? too logical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like the ghost itself is like, well, of course I'm going to turn off the lights using the breaker. That's how you turn off lights. Yeah. You know, and now it's not just as easy as flicking your switch in your kitchen. Now you got to go into the cupboard yeah, it's like petty. Take out all the coats and Almost. shit. Yeah. And he's like, "This, I'm going to spill all this tea. Yeah, you know, yeah. and just pressing this button. You're just going to stand there and watch me? I'm going to do it. <laughs> so anyway, this, uh, as soon as the candlestick drops on the floor in front of the vicar, this huge crashing sound, quote, like a piece of furniture falling through the ceiling from the next room happens. And they all run in to see, like, what the fuck was that? <laughs> Thinking something had fallen through the ceiling. They find scattered all over the carpet every cup, saucer, and plate from their china cupboard. Huh. Right. Now, obviously, these are, like, four of these, four of these, four, like, a, a complete set. Yeah. All in perfect condition. Nothing broken or cracked. Everything is placed neatly yeah. on the carpet. And... Marie was like, subsidence, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Got him. Yeah. <laughs> Reverend Davy told them they need to move. Because <laughs> like, I ain't dealing with this shit. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> He'd seen enough. This was evil as far as he's concerned. Yeah. I feel like every fucking religious person is going to say evil. Yeah. But anyway, that was it. He's like, I'm, a, I'm fucking out of here. Now, but Jean was determined like she was not going to be forced out of her home mm. by some fucking ghost yeah anyway i'm gonna read one last thing from the book and i'm gonna call it quits for this week because i really am trying to make these brief but there's just so much 
And this is only one of the books that I've been reading. That's pretty cool. No, it is. It's really cool that there's so much documented. Anyway, so, oh yeah, this is a quote from the book. And this is later that evening. Diane, the daughter, was on her way up to bed when the lights went out. She stood there in the hall, which was dimly lit by the street lamp, which shone through the frosted glass on the front door. Mr. Pritchard was looking for the torch to look in the main cupboard. And as Diane stood there, a huge shadow appeared on the wall and the atmosphere became icy. The hall stand, a heavy piece of furniture made of oak, floated up into the air and moved toward her. She tripped and went backwards on the stairs, and the stand pressed down on her. So did an electric sewing machine that had been on it. She tried to push it away, but it was unbudgeable, yet it was not pressing down on her with all its weight merely holding her pinned to the stairs. She was too breathless to scream. The lights came on and Diane found her voice and yelled. The family rushed out into the hall and her mother tried to drag the stand off her. It was impossible. It was simply being held in position by a force that was stronger than she was. Philip and Jean began to heave on it, but it made no difference. Diane was whimpering. Jean advised her to lie still and try to relax. At least it was now clear that she was not being crushed to death. And as soon as she relaxed, Diane felt a change in the force holding her down. She said, now try. And as they pulled it, the stand came off her. So did the electric sewing machine. Yet, oddly enough, neither had bruised her. Mrs. Pritchard helped Diane up to bed. She was shaken, but not frightened. She seemed to sense that this thing meant her no real harm, but it had not yet finished with her. As soon as her bedroom light was out, the bedclothes were pulled off the bed and landed in the corner of the room. The room itself had become icy cold. She had a strong sense there was someone else there with her, although the light from the landing revealed no one. Then her mattress shot into the air like a magic carpet in the Arabian Nights, and she found herself on the floor with the mattress on top of her. It all happened in about a second. That night, it happened four more times. Each time she found herself on the floor with the mattress on top of her, yet she was still unhurt. Hmm. And I, like, I'm going to leave it at that because it's just fucking insane. Like, I have never heard. I wonder what would have happened if, because it clearly just wants to annoy the fuck out of him. But I yeah. wonder what would have happened if she would have just stayed underneath that mattress. And be like, I just been like, all right. Fuck I guess it. I'll sleep here. Yeah. It's like that meme when your friend forgets to give you a blanket when you're sleeping over and you just use anything. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that that's the uh the Black Monk of Black Monk of Pontefract part one. Sick. I was hoping to cover more, but like now I'm glad I fucking didn't, because that's quite a fucking chunk. And the next weeks will probably be even more. Um and I don't want to give away too much because I am balls deep in this story and loving it so far. Graphic. Well, you or, asked. Or how, uh, Aunt, what's it, Archer? It's a phrasing. You going to tell us a story now? Fuck no. <laughs> no, Um. yeah. Oh. <laughs> okay. That was kind of unclear. Then. <laughs> so I'm pretty excited this week. Because I wanted to do uh, something different. 
Okay. And now for something completely different. Yeah. What's that from again? I don't know. Like Monty Python or something? Maybe. I tried watching Monty Python, but it was... I just couldn't. It was too cringy. It's cringy. Anyways. So my sources are Bustle, Gutenberg, Wikipedia, ucdavis.edu. He's not the messiah. Isn't that from him? I don't fucking know. <laughs> anyway, okay, cool, cool sources. All right, so those are my sources. Actually, right, right before you go. Yeah. So the two books that I've been using are the Black Monte, Black fucking out, the Black Monk of Pontefract, the world's most violent and relentless poltergeist, and Poltergeist, a classic study in destructive hauntings by Colin Wilson. The other one is by. Richard Estep and Bill Bungay. And I've also used a couple of websites, but not for this one just yet. Cool. So this week, what we're going to talk about is the not so happy origins of some of the Disney stories. Yay! Yay! Not all of them. I'm only going to be doing four stories. If you guys like this, I'll dig up some more. Okay. But if you don't, uh, next week it is a heavy one. <laughs> so I feel <laughs> it's so like I, a punishment. Like, <laughs> no. If you don't enjoy this one, I'm gonna talk to you guys about something awful. Child murder. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyways, <laughs> I wanted to do this because, like, I, I already started working on next week's story. But it got me like feeling some kind of way, so I was like, you know what, I'm I'm gonna take a break on this. Yeah, good. And then, um, because you know, they really do take a toll on you. Oh yeah. When you're researching this kind of stuff, Big time. um, especially when you, well, for me, as luck would have it, the topics that I end up picking out that I have not heard of, like anything about, end up being like the most gruesome ones to me <laughs> and i'm just like oh great i get to read about this awful thing now <laughs> yeah and we have definitely fallen into a uh, a pattern like where i'm doing ghost stories and you're doing murder or yeah. true crime but i will have a couple of true crime coming up mm-hmm. hopefully after this i guess series on the black monk yeah yeah so okay. we're gonna switch it up then gonna, i don't want to i'm gonna make you <laughs> So that's why I wanted to do something lighter, you know? Yeah, yeah. Sugar-free, low-calorie, low-carb kind of story. <laughs> All right. <laughs> it's like that, uh, what was that place that I went to get food for you? and just had all old people in there. Lubies? Yeah. Love Lubies. This is like the Lubies fucking uh, early bird menu. Now, we don't use salt. We don't use foods that have color in them, like carrots. This is a and we don't use flavor. This is a blue plate special. Okay. The first story is Cinderella. Ooh. And apparently it's otherwise, like the original story is, is Ashken Putel by the Brothers Grimm. Oh, okay. So the story tells of a gentleman's daughter forced to wear rags and do her stepmother and stepsister's bidding. Unlike Cinderella... Askin Putul has no fairy godmother to help her, but she does have white birds who give her fine clothes 
to go to the royal festivities, where she meets her prince. From there, the story is fairly similar. She goes to the ball, meets the prince, and loses her slipper, which he uses to find her. But the Disney movie skipped the part where one of the stepsisters cuts off her big toe, and the other one cuts off her heel in their attempts to trick the prince into marrying them. Cuts off her heel? Yeah. Why is that so much worse than big toe? I don't know. I have no fucking clue, but I'm like trying to... Gross. (laughs) I'm rubbing off on you. (laughs) Gross. (laughs) Why do we do the things we do? All right. So I'm going to quote the story. The next morning, he went with it, the slipper, Mm -hmm. to the father and said to him, no one shall be my wife, but she whose foot this golden slipper fits. Then were the two sisters glad, for they had pretty feet. The eldest went with the shoe into her room and wanted to try it on, and her mother stood by, but she could not get her big toe into it, and the shoe was too small for her. Then her mother gave her a knife and said, Cut the toe off. When you are queen, you will have no more need to go on foot. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to lie. Like, as I'm sitting here thinking about it, if like a very rich prince was offering me, you know, this like, I probably would cut off a toe. <laughs> I don't think I would. <laughs> the maiden cut the toe off, forced the foot into the shoe, swallowed the pain, and went out to the king's son. Swallowed the pain. Yeah. Then he took her on his horse as his bride and rode away with her. They were obliged, however, to pass the grave. And there on the hazel tree sat the two pigeons and cried, Turn and peep, turn and peep. There's blood within the shoe. The shoe is too small for her. The true bride waits for you. I love that. Those clever little pigeons. Yeah. Then he looked at her foot and saw how the blood was trickling from it. He turned his horse around and took the false bride home again and said she was not the true one and that the other sister was to put the shoe on. Then this one went into her chamber and got her toes safely into the shoe, but her heel was too large. So her mother gave her a knife and said, cut a bit off your heel. When you're a queen, you will have no more need to go on foot. The maiden cut a bit off of her heel, forced her foot into the shoe, swallowed the pain, and went out to the king's son. He took her on his horse as his bride and rode away with her. But when he passed by the hazel tree, the two pigeons sat on it and cried, Turn and peep, turn and peep. There's blood within the shoe. The shoe is too small for her. The true bride waits for you. He looked down at her foot and saw how the blood was running out of her shoe, and how it had stained her white stocking quite red. Then he turned his horse, took the false bride home again. This also is not the right one, said he. Have you no other daughter? No, said the man. There is still a little stunted kitchen wench, which my late wife left behind her, but she cannot possibly be the bride. The king's son said he was to send her up to him, but the mother answered, Oh no, she is much too dirty. She cannot show herself, but he absolutely insisted on it, and Cinderella had to be called. 
She first washed her hands and face clean and then went and bowed down before the king's son, who gave her the golden shoe. Then she seated herself on a stool, drew her foot out of the heavy wooden shoe and put it into the slipper, which fit like a glove. And when she rose up and the king's son looked at her face, he recognized a beautiful maiden who had danced with him and cried, This is the true bride. The stepmother and the two sisters were horrified and became pale with rage. He, however, took Cinderella on his horse and rode away with her. As they passed by the hazel tree, the two white doves cried, Turn and peep, turn and peep. No blood is in the shoe. The shoe is not too small for her. The true bride rides with you. And when they had cried that, the two came flying down and placed themselves on Cinderella's shoulder, one on the right and the other on the left, and remained sitting there. When the wedding with the king's son was to be celebrated, the two false sisters came and wanted to get in favor with Cinderella and share her good fortune. When the betrothed couple went to church, the elder was at the right side and the younger at the left. And the pigeons pecked out one eye from each of them. Afterwards, as they came back, the elder was on the left and the younger on the right. And then the pigeons pecked out the other eye from each. And thus, for their wickedness and falsehood, they were punished with blindness all their days. Okay, there's a lot to unpack here. (laughs) So, like, okay, I was like, <laughs> some of you were probably like Disney stories, but I'm like, wait, wait, the just OGs. wait. <laughs> okay, so first, that slipper was golden, not glass, but also covered in other people's blood. Yeah. While Cinderella rides off Mary on her new horse. Correct. Cons- and I would bet on that it was, that it would have been, considering how not often they bathe so why would they wash a shoe yeah straight away also can you imagine the pain of putting your foot into that thing with your toe or heel cut off and then how did they stand in the church with one eye pecked out it's like ah ah it's a beautiful wedding <laughs> this is so exciting i'm so happy to be here i don't and know. then wait around until the next one gets fucking ripped out no idea but the next story is aladdin so this one was just kind of weird and fever dreamish. It was from the collection of 1001 Nights. And the story Aladdin tells the story of a poor man who was coerced by a Magravian sorcerer into retrieving a magic lamp from a cave. In this version, Aladdin summons two genies, the slave of the ring and the slave of the lamp, the second of whom helps Aladdin marry the princess by torturing her new husband the vizier's son. So apparently he's already, she's already married in the story. Oh, shit. You know, and I actually don't genies. know that I've seen uh, Aladdin. Oh. But like, I know the story, though. You know what I mean? Right. So the vizier's son's tortured every night. And he is forced to allow Aladdin to sleep in bed with the princess. Okay. Yeah. So he is cuckolded, too, I guess. Yeah. I think that's the word. Does the princess have any say in this? No. She's not consenting. No. Lovely. It, it's weird because I've noticed, um, and it, it kind of seems like this in Beauty and the Beast, how sex and love 
is like, oh, well, all you got to do is have sex and you guys will be in love. Yeah. That's a lot. Like I don't think that's theme. anything to do with Disney. That's just religious practices. And uh, I don't know what it is, but it's gross. But anyways. Patriarchy um, and all that. Even though the slave of the lamp is more powerful and is a genie who eventually winds up in the service to the sorcerer, it's the slave of the ring who teleports Aladdin to reunite with his wife and face off against the bad guy. So apparently he's married too. <laughs> oh. Anyways, the princess <laughs> convinces the sorcerer to drink poison and everything seems to be fine until the sorcerer's brother shows up. You see, there's a ton of characters in this one. Okay. Disguised as a holy woman, the brother convinces the princess that Aladdin's palace needs the egg of a rock, which is, other word, in other words, a gigantic predatory bird. An egg of a enormous bird okay when aladdin commands the slave of the lamp to bring him the item the genie is highly offended he leaves aladdin's service but not before warning him of the threat posed by the quote holy woman aladdin stabs a sorcerer's brother in the chest thus securing his happily ever after you see how like pretty intense yeah and there's like a lot, a lot of, of bloodshed, a lot of bloodshed, a lot of characters and a lot of like, I'm going to sleep with this other man's woman. <laughs> I feel like you are focused on that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I didn't want to get into Aladdin because it's so convoluted, but that's that's the gist one. of it. Okay. <laughs> okay, interesting. I'm pretty sure I don't remember Robin Williams. <laughs> doing this to uh like yeah okay. i don't okay <laughs> all right so the next one's beauty and the beast the original beauty and the beast was a novel written and published by gabrielle suzanne barbeau de villeneuve in 1740 say her name again <laughs> gabrielle suzanne barbeau de villeneuve it's a long ass name yeah in this published fairy tale Belle's father is a merchant who has 12 children. Okay. And he agrees to bring them each back a gift, including a rose for Belle. Like in the movie, he accidentally crosses the beast, who has been cursed by an evil sorceress who advances he rejected. Okay. He, he is released only on the promise that he'll send someone in his place, and Belle is the one chosen. As in the Disney story, the Beast must get Belle to love him if he wants to break the spell. But in Villeneuve's novel, he tries to do this by asking Belle to sleep with him every night. So this story is a novel-length story intended for adult readers, addressing the issues of the marriage system of the day in which women had no right to choose their husband or to re refuse to marry. Oh, well. Yeah, I didn't know that. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, me too. Right on your name <laughs> long name lady so one of the key differences is is the story of beauty's family so again he's a widower merchant who lives in a mansion with his 12 children you know like in the movie he wasn't wealthy oh okay yeah I... and he only had a bell right but in this one he has the original, he has 12 children, six sons and six daughters. All of the daughters were very beautiful, but the youngest, Beauty, is the most lovely. She is also kind, well-read, and pure of heart. Wait, her name is Beauty? Mm-hmm. Not Belle? No. Oh, okay, okay. Her elder sisters, though, are, are cruel, selfish, vain, and spoiled. 
On a dark and stormy night at sea, the merchant is robbed by pirates who sink most of his merchant fleet and force the entire family to live in a country house and work for a living. Oh my god, work for a living. <laughs> While Beauty makes a firm resolution to adjust to rural life with a cheerful disposition, her sisters do not and mistake her firmness for insensibility, forcing her into doing household work in an effort to make enough money to buy back their former home. A year later, the merchant hears from one of his crew members that one of the trade ships he had sent has arrived back to port, having escaped the destruction of its companions. Before leaving, he asks his children if they wish for him to bring any gifts back for them. The sons ask for weaponry and horses to hunt with, whereas the oldest sisters ask for clothing, jewels, and fine dresses, as they think his wealth has returned. Beauty asks for nothing but her father's safety, but when he insists on buying her present, she is satisfied with the promise of a rose after none had grown last spring. However, to his dismay, the merchant finds that his ship's cargo has been seized to pay his debts, leaving him penniless and unable to buy his children's presents. On his way back, the merchant is caught in a terrible storm. Seeking shelter, he comes upon a mysterious palace. The merchant sneaks in, seeing that nobody is home and finds tables laden with food and drinks, which seem to have been left for him by the palace's invisible owner. The merchant accepts these gifts and spends the night. The next morning, the merchant sees the palace as his own possession and is about to leave when he sees a rose garden and recalls that Beauty had desired a rose. The merchant quickly plucks the loveliest rose he can find and is about to pluck more for a bouquet but is confronted by a hideous beast who warns him that theft of his property is a charge punishable by death. Realizing his deadly mistake, the merchant begs for forgiveness, revealing that he had only picked the rose as a gift for his youngest daughter. After listening to his story, the beast reluctantly agrees to let him give the rose to Beauty. But only if the merchant brings Beauty to him in exchange without deception, he makes it clear that Beauty must agree to take his place so the beast can treat her as his fiance and not his prisoner, while under no illusions about her predicament. Otherwise, the beast will destroy his entire family. Yeah, this is pretty fucking heavy. <laughs> <laughs> At first, the merchant is upset about Beauty being abducted into marrying the creature, but he reluctantly accepts. The beast sends him on his way atop a magical horse, along with wealth, jewels, and fine clothes for his sons and daughters, but stresses that Beauty must never know about his deal. The merchant, upon arriving home, tries to hide the secret from his children, but Beauty pries it from him on purpose. Reacting swiftly, the brothers suggest that they could go to the castle and fight the beast together, while the older sisters place blame on Beauty for dooming the entire family. I fucking hate her sisters. <laughs> to release her father from the threat, Beauty volunteers to go to the beast willingly, and her father reluctantly allows her to go. Once she arrives at his palace, the beast is so excited to meet Beauty face to face, so he throws a welcome ceremony by treating her to an amazing cabaret. He gives her lavish clothing and food and carries on lengthy conversation with her, in which she notes that he is inclined to stupidity rather than savagery. Okay. Every night, the beast asks Beauty to sleep with him, only to be refused each time. After each refusal, Beauty dreams of dancing with a handsome prince. Suddenly, a fairy appears and pleads with Beauty to say why she keeps refusing him. 
She replies that she doesn't know how to love the beast because she loves him only as a friend. The rest of the story doesn't deviate much from the Disney version, minus the dancing cutlery. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, so, I mean, if, if she just wants to be friends, she just wants to be friends. I mean, that's kind of a nice, nice one, actually. Yeah. I, I like that one. I guess. To a, well, I mean. At least she stood her ground and said, yeah. Nah. That's a, yeah. You ain't getting in these pants. lady or beauty or whatever. Yeah. Okay. So the last story is The Little Mermaid. Yay. By Hans Christian Andersen. So I read this. I, I, I didn't read the entire story. I skimmed through most of it, but the, the ending was gripping. I was like, this is so good. This is probably another uh, bombshell, but I haven't seen this. <laughs> so Anderson's Mermaids. You know, Anderson, the storyteller, the person who wrote the book. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what did he, the name of the story is Anderson's Mermaid? No, it's The Little Mermaid. Oh. But in his book or his story, mermaids live for 300 years but have no immortal souls. They simply turn into sea foam when they die. Oh, okay. Yeah, so their souls don't carry on. They just die and end as sea foam. Oh. Yes. How interesting. How many dead mermaids have I swam through? Well, flailed through. <laughs> the Little Mermaid's grandmother tells her that she'll gain an immortal soul if a human man falls in love with her. But humans find mermaids' tails too ugly for that to happen. Oh. Intent on marrying the prince, the Little Mermaid goes to see the sea witch, who warns the Little Mermaid that the transformation of her tail to legs will cause her constant pain, as if she is walking on knives. Jesus. She also warns that if the prince marries anyone else, she will immediately die and turn to seafoam. This is how it all went down. I will prepare a draft for you, with which you must swim to land tomorrow. Before sunrise, seat yourself there and drink it. Your tail will then disappear and shrink up into what men call legs. <laughs> they have these things, see? They call them legs. Yeah, I think the other part of the story was like, they're called pogs or prongs or something that's funny <laughs> yeah i like that touch <laughs> you will feel great pain as if a sword were passing through you but all who see you will say that you are the prettiest little human being they ever saw you will still have the same floating gracefulness of movement and no dancer will ever tread so lightly every step you take however will be as if you were treading upon sharp knives and as if the blood must flow. If you will bear all this, I will help you. Yes, I will, said the little princess in a trembling voice, as she thought of the prince and the immortal soul. But think again, said the witch, for when once your shape has become like a human being, you can no more be a mermaid. You will never return through the water to your sisters or to your father's palace again. And if you do not win the love of the prince so that he is willing to forget his father and mother for your sake and to love you with his whole soul and allow the priest to join your hands that you may be man and wife, then you will never have an immortal soul. The first morning after he marries another, your heart will break and you will become foam on the crest of the waves. I find that really funny for some reason. What, that they turn into foam? It's like pop. Oh, <laughs> I guess they just disintegrate. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's how uh, Venus was born, out of sea foam. 
I believe you. Okay. I just think it's funny. <laughs> I will do it, said the little mermaid, and she became pale as death. But I must be paid also, said the witch, and it is not a trifle that I ask. You have the sweetest voice of any who dwell here in the depths of the sea, and you believe that you will be able to charm the prince with it, but this voice you must give to me. The best thing you possess will I have as the price of my costly draft, which must be mixed with my own blood, so that it may be sharp as a two-edged sword. But if you take away my voice, said the little mermaid, what is left for me? Your beautiful form, your graceful walk, and your expressive eyes. Surely with these you can enchain a man's heart. Well, have you lost your courage? Put out your little tongue, that I may cut it off as my payment. Then you shall have my powerful draught. It shall be, said the little mermaid. Then the witch placed her cauldron to prepare the magic draught. Cleanliness is a good thing, said she, scouring the vessel with snakes, which she had tied together in a large knot. Then she pricked herself in the breast and let the black blood drop into the cauldron. The steam that rose twisted itself into such horrible shapes that no one could look at them without fear. Every moment the witch threw a new ingredient into the vessel, and when it began to boil the sound was like the weeping of a crocodile. When at last the magic draft was ready, it looked like the clearest water. There it is for you, said the witch. Then she cut off the mermaid's tongue so that she would never again speak or sing. Fucking hell. So the sea witch doesn't sabotage the little mermaid like in the movie, but the prince still marries someone else. That bastard. (laughs) Yeah. So this is the part that just broke my heart. Oh, God. Okay. But it is so good. (laughs) I was like, I have to include this. (laughs) So this is like the prince already married the woman, which incidentally, like he has never seen, but he's like... He's like, hey, I have to marry her, blah, blah, blah. The prince never actually falls in love with the Little Mermaid. Um, He finds her and like he kind of feels like bad for her because Mm -hmm. of the way he finds her. Uh, She's just like naked and like only covering herself with her big her big ass hair. She can't speak. And he 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 kind of looks at her like a pet. So that's how he treats her. Like he there's he keeps a cushion outside of his door that she sleeps on oh that what yeah it's so strange but um yeah so he's like yeah now i'm gonna go marry this princess cool yeah (laughs) oh i know it's awful (laughs) and she can't say anything like she you know this is just my pet no tongue yeah correct and the thing but the thing is much like the movie he he did he was on a ship and he did almost drown and he, she saved him he remembers her face he was like yeah you know uh he remembers almost drowning and being saved by a woman and he vaguely remembers what she looks like but it almost doesn't really click that it's her right so just that's just for context that does happen okay okay just like it did in the movie he almost drowned and he got saved by the little mermaid that's how she came to know him. Oh, okay. Because okay. she's like, I've saved this prince and I'm hell-bent on marrying him. So yeah. give me some legs, sea witch. You know? <laughs> give me some legs, sea witch. <laughs> <laughs> give me some prongs. <laughs> yeah. 
So again, this is them right after the wedding ceremony. And they had the wedding ceremony on a ship. Okay. Classy. Real classy. So everyone was in, in attendance, including the Little Mermaid. The next morning, the ship sailed into the harbor of a beautiful town belonging to the king whom the prince was going to visit. The church bells were ringing, and from the high tower sounded a flourish of trumpets. Soldiers with flying colors and glittering bayonets lined the roads through which they passed. Every day was a festival, balls and entertainments following one another, but the princess had not yet appeared. People said that she had been brought up and educated in a religious house, where she was learning every royal virtue. At last she came. Then the little mermaid, who was anxious to see whether she was really beautiful, was obliged to admit that she had never seen a more perfect vision of beauty. Her skin was delicately fair, and beneath her long, dark eyelashes, her laughing blue eyes shone with truth and purity. It was you, said the prince, who saved my life when I lay as if dead on the beach. And he folded his blushing bride in his arms. I was like, what the fuck? Talk about rubbing salt in the wound. Seriously. What a cunt. <laughs> <laughs> so glad I don't date anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I am too happy, said he to the little mermaid. My fondest hopes are now fulfilled. You will rejoice at my happiness, for your devotion to me is great and sincere. More salt to the wound. Yeah. Thanks, little dog. Yeah. Faithful companion. <laughs> I want you to watch as I consummate my marriage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The little mermaid kissed his hand and felt as if her heart were already broken. His wedding morning would bring death to her, and she would change into the foam of the sea. The Little Mermaid is given the option to stab and kill him and live out the rest of her days. I would do it. All was joy and gaiety on the ship until long after midnight. She smiled and danced with the rest while the thought of death was in her heart. The prince kissed his beautiful bride and she played with his raven hair till they <laughs> went arm in arm to rest in the sumptuous tent. I didn't know you were going to say hair. <laughs> <laughs> What his raven? What like? What well, else no, you he... do, you're just saying. And she played with his. Ah, uh. I was like, uh. <laughs> more salt into the wound. <laughs> yeah, you're on the deck. <laughs> then all became still on board the ship, and only the pilot, who stood at the helm, was awake. The little mermaid leaned her white arms on the edge of the vessel and looked down towards the east for the first blush of morning, for that first ray of the dawn, which was to be her death. She saw her sisters rising out of the flood. They were as pale as she, but their beautiful hair no longer waved in the wind. It had been cut off. We have given our hair to the witch, said they, to obtain help for you, that you may not die tonight. She has given us a knife. See, it's very sharp. Before the sun rises, you must plunge it into the heart of the prince. When the warm blood falls upon your feet, they will grow together again into a fish's tail, and you will once more be a mermaid and can return to us to live out your 300 years before you are changed into the salt sea foam. Haste, then. Either he or you must die before sunrise. Our old grandmother mourns so for you that her white hair is falling. As ours fell under the witch's scissors, kill the prince and come back. 
Hasten, do you not see the first red streaks in the sky? In a few minutes the sun will rise and you must die. Then they sighed deeply and mournfully and sank beneath the waves. The little mermaid drew back the crimson curtain of the tent and beheld the fair bride, whose head was resting on the prince's breast. She bent down and kissed his noble brow, then looked at the sky, on which the rosy dawn grew brighter and brighter. She glanced at the sharp knife and again fixed her eyes on the prince, who whispered the name of his bride in his dreams. She was in his thoughts, and the knife trembled in the hand of the little mermaid, but she flung it far from her into the waves. The water turned red where it fell, and the drops that spurted up looked like blood. She cast one more lingering, half-fainting glance at the prince, then threw herself from the ship into the sea and felt her body dissolving into foam. Instead of sea foam, she finds herself amongst the daughters of the air, which are good melodious spirits who gain immortal souls after doing 300 years of good deeds. So there, this is sort of like a purgatory. She has a chance to gain an immortal soul if she completes 300 years of good deeds. The sun rose above the waves and his warm rays fell on the cold foam of the little mermaid, who did not feel as if she were dying. She saw the bright sun and the hundreds of transparent, beautiful creatures floating around her. She could see through them the white sails of the ships and the, the red clouds of the sky. Their speech was melodious but could not be heard by mortal ears, just as their bodies could not be seen by mortal eyes. The little mermaid perceived that she had a body like theirs and that she continued to rise higher and higher out of the foam. Where am I? asked she, and her voice sounded ethereal, like the voices of those who were with her. No earthly music could imitate it. Among the daughters of the air, answered one of them, a mermaid has not an immortal soul, nor can she obtain one, unless she wins the love of a human being. On the will of another hangs her eternal destiny. But the daughters of the air, although they do not possess an immortal soul, can, by their good deeds, procure one for themselves. We fly to warm countries and cool the sultry air that destroys mankind with the pestilence. We carry the perfume of the flowers to spread health and restoration. After we have striven for 300 years to do all the good in our power, we receive an immortal soul and take part in the happiness of mankind. You, poor little mermaid, have tried with your whole heart to do as we are doing. You have suffered and endured and raised yourself to the spirit world by your good deeds, and now, by striving for 300 years in the same way, you may obtain an immortal soul. The little mermaid lifted her glorious eyes towards the sun and for the first time felt them filling with tears. On the ship in which she had left the prince, there was life and noise. She saw him and his beautiful bride searching for her. Sorrowfully, they gazed at the pearly foam as if they knew she had thrown herself into the waves. Unseen, she kissed the forehead of the bride and fanned the prince and then mounted with the other children of the air to a rosy cloud that floated above. After three hundred years, thus shall we float into the kingdom of heaven, said she. And we may even get there sooner, whispered one of her companions. Unseen, we can enter the houses of men where there are children, and for every day on which we find a good child that is the joy of his parents and deserves their love, our time of probation is shortened. The child does not know, when we fly through the room, that we smile with joy at his good conduct, 
where we can count one year less of our 300 years. But when we see a naughty or wicked child, we shed tears of sorrow, and for every tear, a day is added to our time of trial. So there you go. Just a pretty complex, complex rules, but <laughs> I mean, I would definitely, it feels like a kind of a cheat. Like you get one year off for every good child and only one day on. Yeah, I'd, I'd say it's a better deal yeah, than the I'd go alternate. For it. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, now I'm kind of glad she didn't kill the, the, the prince or the king or whatever the fuck he was. Yeah. Because it seems like the, the, like one of the things that they want mermaids is to have an immortal soul. Yeah. I'm glad we're discussing this really important issue. <laughs> mermaids need immortal souls. <laughs> so, yeah. Reminder, just to re- reiterate, if you guys want to hear more of these origin stories, go ahead and let me know so I can do it for next week. Um, otherwise, you're getting something awful. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I want to hear the origin of cars. <laughs> <laughs> All right, gang. Well, I guess that's it. We uh, Yeah, get in touch with us. Reach out. DM us. Thanks for listening to us. If you want more content, make sure to follow or to subscribe to our Patreon. Um, we do. We've got a buttload of stuff up there right now. Anyway, we do things. We do do things. We have a video coming out there this Saturday, which we have definitely already recorded and edited, and it's one hundred percent ready to go up because we are so organized. And uh, yeah, follow us on Instagram. Reach out to us. Send us a spooky story. Or even just a close encounter story. Yeah, tell us what you thought about this one. Yeah, let us know what you think. Um, If you are going to send us a story, send it to weeklycreep at gmail.com. And I think that's probably it. All right. Sick. Okay. Bye. Bye. I'm going to murder the ice cream man. Do 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 do